Our apologies for the delayed release of this episode. Unfortunately, we suffered a recording error and had to re-record the episode later. This week we'll be discussing Syrian chemical attacks, Israel-Iran conflict, Brazilian and South Korean corruption, Hungarian and Italian elections, as well as Ethiopia's new prime minister, and a deeper dive on the responsibility to protect doctrine. Hello, and welcome to the Envoy podcast for the 13th of April. We are your hosts, Nathan Shaw and Tim Gosling. Now on to this week's roundup. 40 people were killed by poisonous gas in the town of Douma in Syria. America and its allies claimed the regime of President Bashar al-Assad used chemical weapons and have threatened to respond with military action. Russia, on the other hand, claims to have found no evidence that chemical weapons were used. US President Donald Trump threatened to launch an imminent missile strike on Syrian government forces. If he carries it out, it would be his second missile strike on Syria. Last year in April, he launched a missile strike on an airbase in response to another chemical attack. Russia has responded by saying they will shoot down any missiles and target their launches. In related news, an Israeli airstrike on a Syrian military airbase killed seven Iranian military advisers. The Iranians were trying to develop an air defense capability that would have prevented future Israeli airstrikes. An Iranian colonel killed in the attack was also involved in Iran's drone program. Israel has carried out 100 cross-border strikes since the beginning of the Syrian war in 2011, but only three in which Iranian personnel were directly targeted. The last was in response to the shooting down of an Israeli fighter jet. This latest move indicates that Israel is taking a more preemptive rather than reactive stance against Iran in Syria. It is part of an ongoing rivalry between the two countries. Iran supports Palestinian proxies like Hezbollah that attack Israel. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, a former president of Brazil, has begun serving a 12-year sentence for corruption. Lula was leading the polls for the upcoming October election, and his party insists he will remain their candidate. However, Brazil's electoral laws bar those convicted of corruption from standing for political office. His main rival, Jair Bolsonaro, an ultra-right congressman and former army captain, has been lagging behind Lula in the polls, but may now grab victory. Lula is the latest Brazilian politician to be accused of corruption. In 2016, Dilma Rousseff was impeached for her involvement in the car wash scandal. Her successor, Michel Temer, was also accused of involvement but was able to narrowly avoid impeachment. Sticking to the theme of corruption, former South Korean President Park Yang-hoo was also sentenced to 24 years for corruption. She was impeached last year after mass demonstrations called for her removal. In Europe, Viktor Orban was elected in a landslide for his third successive term as Prime Minister of Hungary. Orban campaigned heavily against migration and the influence of the European Union, United Nations and George Soros, a billionaire and Hungarian expatriate who now lives in the US and finances many civil and lobbying groups. Elsewhere in Europe, Italy is still without a government as the president, Sergio Mattarella, is continuing with coalition talks. The populist five-star movement is the largest party, but has ruled out a coalition with Forza Italia, a centre-right party of former Prime Minister Silvio Bersoloni. Abi Ahmed was named leader of the ruling coalition in Ethiopia, and by extension, the country's Prime Minister. At 42 years old, he's Africa's youngest leader. He's also the first from the Oromo tribe to be Prime Minister in Ethiopia. The Oromo are the largest ethnic group in Ethiopia and have been agitating over the last three years. Their grievances include land seizures, government repression, and a belief that other ethnic groups like the Aramaeans and the Tigrayans have kept them out of power. Abi's elevation was celebrated throughout the region of Oromia. He is also looking to reduce tensions with neighbouring Eritrea. The two countries fought each other in the Eritrean-Ethiopian War of 1998-2000. They are still embroiled in border disputes, and the armies were fighting each other as recently as June 2016. That's it for this week's roundup. Now to this week's Deeper Dive. On this week's Deeper Dive, we're going to look at something called Responsibility to Protect. 
Now, the reason we're bringing this up is that in last week's episode, we discussed sovereignty, uh, in particular related to secessionist groups. And this idea of state sovereignty, of having control of your own territory and not being infringed upon by any outside actors. So this week, I thought we'd talk about the flip side of this and the idea that sometimes intervention can be internationally recognized. And the primary mode of this is come something called responsibility to protect, also known as R2P. First, we're going to look at the history of R2P and how it came about. Second, we're going to look at how it works in the international system. Then we'll look at some past examples of where it's been implemented. Uh, and then try and apply it to current crises and see if it's applicable now. Finally, we're going to look at the future of R2P, what problems face it, and where it might be going in the future. So what is responsibility to protect? Well, according to the UN, it is a political commitment to end the worst forms of violence and persecution. It seeks to narrow the gap between member states' pre-existing obligations under international humanitarian as well as human rights law and the reality faced by populations at risk of genocide, war crimes, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. Following atrocities in the Balkans and Rwanda in the 1990s, which the international community failed to prevent, and the NATO military intervention in Kosovo, which was criticized by many as a violation of the prohibition of the use of force, the international community engaged in serious debate on how to react to gross and systemic violations of human rights. This culminated in a 2001 report entitled The Responsibility to Protect, issued by a Canadian-backed International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty, also known as ICISS. The 2001 report also has an Australian angle. A former Labour Party politician and academic Gareth Evans was deeply involved in the development of R2P and was co-chair alongside Mohamed Sanoun, an Algerian diplomat, on the Canadian-backed International Commission. However, R2P was actually predated by the African Union. In the year 2000, adopted the right to intervene in a member state in similar circumstances to the R2P, primarily focusing on crimes against humanity, genocide, and war crimes. At the 2005 UN World Summit, the R2P principle was endorsed by world leaders and was set up so that it would be authorized by the UN Security Council. So now that we have some background where it's come from, how does R2P actually work? R2P expands the idea of humanitarian intervention from merely going in militarily to protect some people or intervene to something called capacity building. Capacity building effectively means helping build a state's infrastructure, institutions such as laws and administration, and trust in those institutions. It's a holistic approach intended to not just stop some immediate violence, but create a situation where the country becomes stable enough that the violence won't persist or occur in the future. There's also an important part of R2P principle in that it is also preventative. This could mean that instead of waiting for an atrocity to occur and then intervening, if you believe one is imminent, you are allowed to go in and basically try and prevent it from happening by shoring up the stability of a country. In theory, if mass atrocities are believed to be imminent or already in progress, the UN Security Council will authorize a set of countries to intervene. Their role will be to stabilize that country through aid and support and or military intervene to protect civilian populations. You might also have NGOs, uh, non-governmental organizations like the Red Cross, also being invited as needed. 
And it's important to note with R2P that part of the implicit assumption is that the state that a population lives within is responsible for looking after that population and preventing uh, atrocities from occurring to it. And if that state either abdicates or, or shirks or is unable to provide that protection, that responsibility then shifts to the international community that must then intervene to protect that population. Now, from our early conversation, though, you would remember that states are somewhat skeptical about other states intervening in their internal affairs, and I generally don't like that from it happening. This is the idea of state sovereignty, of having control of your own internal affairs and not having any outsiders interfere with them. While countries may be skeptical of aid organizations or foreign aid workers as being cover for foreign influence, they're almost always opposed to military intervention. There can be an exception in that if a foreign intervention is helping that state fight some kind of militant group that is uh, the cause of the atrocities, they might be willing to allow that, especially if it's an ally that is moving to intervene and assist. And the idea of the, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But even then, there'll be a degree of skepticism and particularly populations might be worried that the outside force is interfering with their internal affairs and that should, they should be let to learn to deal with it themselves. And so part of the system to bring countries on board with this idea that they may in the future may be intervened upon was this idea that they would set strict conditions for the exceptional measure of military intervention. These were laid out in the ICISS Commission's report and they are as follows. The first one is just cause, uh, then right intention, last resort, proportionality, reasonable prospects, and then right authority. And so I'm gonna run through each one of these quickly. So starting with just cause. Well, just cause means there's actually mass atrocities occurring or imminent, and that an intervention isn't happening for some kind of trumped up reason that uh, doesn't meet the valid criteria. The second is right intention, and that the states intervening are there purely to prevent human suffering, and they don't have any ulterior motives behind their intervention. Third is last resort, the idea that, are there any other options suitable? Could Maybe the first step isn't always military action. Maybe you go in and you help train up police forces first, help them stabilize the country rather than intervening. Maybe it's gonna help build infrastructure, help send some economic aid to uh, bolster the country before it slides further into conflict and the risk of atrocities. However, this doesn't mean that you automatically have to go through in a slow escalation up to military. If a situation is out of hand, the military can be the first option if that is the only reasonable option available. Fourth is proportionality, the idea of not going over the top and the idea that if there is a localized problem with the country, you will send in just the right amount of forces to assist and protect populations. You are not going to move in and then just destroy uh, every single uh, enemy in sight and not going to overstep the bounds of the remit that has been given. Five is the idea of reasonable prospects and that if an atrocity is occurring, there's a strong pull from a moral standpoint to intervene to help, but you need to be aware of the law of unintended consequences and that in the process of helping and intervening, you may spawn more problems than you solve. And thus you need to take a really critical eye and really think through your plan of how you're going to protect people and make sure that you're not going to cause more net harm than net good. The last is right authority. The idea that the Security Council is approving this rather than a unilateral approach being taken by countries just deciding to go in on their own. So that was how RTP in principle should work. Now we're going to look at some past examples and then eventually we'll move on to current crises.
So the first past example we're going to look at is that in Kenya in 2007, a disputed election resulted in ethnic violence. A French-led effort brought the issue to the Security Council, and successfully this resulted in R2P being used to stop the violence. In another success story, the Ivory Coast in 2011 had a similar post-election violence that resulted in UN military intervention and success in stopping atrocities. However, in Libya in 2011, a widely known intervention, there was a civil war in Libya and the Security Council approved a mandate for R2P, uh, but that no foreign occupation force would be sent, but otherwise all necessary measures would be taken to protect civilians. Under the UN mandate, NATO started its strikes. However, the intervention was criticized by Russia, India, Brazil, and China as overstepping its mandate by helping rebels fight Gaddafi and turning the objective into regime change. And this is something called the mixed motive problem that we'll deal with later. This particular intervention has hurt R2P's legitimacy as in this case it was seen as a tool of great powers to intervene and start regime change rather than purely being there to protect civilian populations. In the Central African Republic in 2013, a rebel coalition attacked the government, citing neglect of their regions. Uh, militias on both sides developed and have been reported to have engaged in crimes against humanity. The response was initially slow to begin with, but eventually France moved from a hands-off approach to a military presence to enforce peace through the R2P principle. And this is the idea of they attempted to solve it diplomatically and then trying through aid, and eventually they saw military intervention as the only viable option left as a kind of last resort. You may also remember the name Mali as a country in 2013 that France engaged in intervention with. However, this was not an R2P intervention. Instead, this was a government of Mali-initiated uh, system where they asked France to assist rather than a country going to the UN and saying that Mali was no longer able to protect its populations and that uh, a mandate overriding Mali's government would be needed to send people in. So it's a little bit different, but this gives you an idea of some of the past cases which seem to have worked and others like Libya where things have gone wrong, or at least in the eyes of other states that seem to be an abuse of the R2P principle has occurred. Now we're going to look at some current crises and they all have the potential for R2P to be invoked, but we're going to have a look at each case and, and see why or why not it's being used. First there's the war in Yemen where the Saudi coalition which states that it is working on behalf of the legal internationally recognized Yemeni government, is fighting Houthi rebels in a war. And during that process, it has been blockading supplies reaching the country, believing that it is preventing arms shipments to the country. However, at the same time, uh, the blockade is preventing adequate food, water, and medicine to support the civilian population. This is another situation where there is an R2P being invoked yet, and the legitimate government in terms of the international community has invited, much like Mali, in an outside force to assist it. But through that process, there seems to be a failure to look after the citizenry of that country. And you could make an argument that a country could go to the UN Security Council and state that the blockade is causing significant problems, or that the government with the backing of the Saudis has been unable to deal with the issue and thus an outside intervention mandated by the UN is required to intervene there. Another country with an ongoing crisis that might warrant R2P intervention would be Myanmar, also known as Burma, and the Rohingya crisis there. 
Now, this started with an alleged expulsion of Rohingya people from Myanmar by government security forces. This came after it was alleged that a Buddhist woman was murdered by Rohingya Muslims, which sparked an escalating series of violent acts. It's believed to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, people being displaced. This would seem to invoke the idea of RTPs being needed to stem the violence and calm things down. However, there's some issues where states have allies or, or links to uh, Security Council members that may adjust what it can actually is feasibly possible, much like in the Yemen case where Saudi Arabia has links to France, the UK and the US, and thus it would complicate any kind of vote on an R2P in reference to Yemen. The same thing would happen in Myanmar. China is closely tied with the Burmese military. And the West has hoped that democratic movements away from previous military rule would help the country. And they're wary of acting aggressively and, and pushing the RTP principle and intervening because they're worried that it'll push the country towards China. And that even if they pushed for RTP, that the issue might be vetoed by China anyway. Finally, we'll get on to one of the biggest crises and one we've discussed earlier with Tim is the 2011 civil war in Syria that has been ongoing ever since. In 2011 and 2013, there were votes on R2P in the UN Security Council. However, Russia and China vetoed those. Russian UN ambassador Vitaly Cherkin particularly referenced the Libyan regime change issue that we discussed earlier as the reason why Russia vetoed the R2P being brought forward for military intervention in Syria. And so you can see with these current crises where Security Council interests of various states can clash and therefore veto power can prevent the R2P principle being used uh, throughout the world uh, equally rather than only states that are not strongly tied to a Security Council member. This results in a situation where some countries might act unilaterally, such as the UK, the US and France recently, where they struck suspected chemical weapons production or operation sites in Syria in response to an alleged chemical weapons attack in a follow-up to an earlier attack that happened 2017 over similar grounds. This however violates one of the earlier conditions we talked about, the idea of right authority and that the UN Security Council should be deciding when to intervene or not rather than unilaterally countries moving in and doing what they wish. So this brings us on to the future of RTP, uh, if it has one uh, what form they will take, and we're going to look at some of these structural problems that it has to overcome or endure to continue into the future. Now, the first one of these structural problems is the idea of mixed motives, and this refers back to that right intentions condition. And because intentions are in people's heads, you won't know until they're on the ground what they're actually going to do. You can only take a guess. And so this leaves us with a Libya problem where states that intervene, in, case this, in this case NATO, uh, as a formation of states engaged in intervention in Libya that resulted in regime change and this was seen as overstepping the bounds and uh, failing to live up with the narrow interpretation of just protecting the population. Uh, I'm not going in there with ulterior motives. The second is that a lot of the time you're engaging in a counterfactual because you can't run two experiments on the same time period. Once you've made an action you can't go back in time and change it and so if you intervene you may prevent an atrocity or it might not have occurred at all in the future anyway and so you have to make an argument that you had a reasonable reason to go in and that it was a high likelihood that an atrocity would take place 
but you can never be absolutely sure. And you may engage in too many interventions under the belief that you're preventing an atrocity from occurring when maybe you shouldn't have gone in and you maybe you'll make things worse than if you took a more hands-off approach and allowed uh, things to take their course without an intervention. The third structural problem is the idea of conspicuous harm, the idea that while you're intervening, it's very visible what kind of destruction is caused during the intervention, whereas all the people's lives you saved, much like the counterfactual problem, um, are not as evident because, well, they didn't die, and so it's not visible. They just continue to exist. And so it's hard to prove and show that you've done a good job because most of the damage that people can see has been caused by the intervention rather than being able to compare that intervention with the potential harm that would have occurred if the intervention hadn't occurred. Fourth is the end state problem, the idea of when do you stop helping? If you leave early, it could just return to its old state. But you could also end up in a position where you are endlessly nation building and you're thinking, well, just one more hospital, just one more brigade of police officers prepared and trained to look after the population, or just one more year to let the country get used to democratic rule, uh, or just one more year of, of peacekeepers on the ground to prevent violence from breaking up. And what might be a shorter intervention might go on for many, many years, but perhaps longer than it should, because it's hard to say when to stop, especially with this idea of capacity building and its holistic approach, is because we're effectively trying to build the entire country up and, and make it stable. And that is a long-term project, generally, rather than a short-term, quick intervention to just protect some people and then leave. Finally, the fifth problem is inconsistency. Because of all these reasons where it's hard to judge when you should intervene or not, you may get a situation where different circumstances might mean you intervene more or less likely. And some states might say, well, why did you intervene here rather than somewhere else? Well, we're being treated differently and you're intervening with us when this other country you didn't intervene with. And you also get this issue where we've discussed earlier with the idea of Security Council interests where the allies of Security Council members are unlikely to have interventions occur upon them, even if they do have populations at risk because those Security Council members might veto the R2P mandate being put forward to intervene. And thus, through inconsistency, it can seem like the legitimacy of R2P is undermined because it's not being used fairly and equally between all nations. It might end up being more selective, and thus the case where several African states we've discussed earlier had R2P used to intervene in those states, whereas in countries where it's been backed by a UN Security Council member, such as Syria, you don't get that same uh, mandate being put forward. And so in summary, the responsibility to protect was a unique initiative to try and create a more holistic approach to atrocities and how to stop them and prevent them. But in the last decade or so, there has been a degree of lost legitimacy due to the particular Libyan issue, as well as this inconsistency with recent crises. And it's hard to say where it's going to exist in the future. If it continues into the future like it has right now, it's probably going to lose legitimacy over time, especially with the unilateral attacks on countries to prevent chemical weapons usages, as we'll start drifting away from this idea of a UN mandate into a more unilateral approach. If, however, nations were willing to sacrifice perhaps some of their own interests in the service of what was morally right or the, the interests of populations being protected, then you might see a change in this in the future. But 
even then, a country that says, okay, well, I'm not going to, to veto the motion made, uh, the mandate made against uh, a nation that I'm aligned with, how do I know that some other country that's intervening isn't going to intervene and have a mixed motive problem, this idea of intentions? Because you can never know what they are until someone actually acts. And so there's a real pushback that's going to be evident against any RTP principle becoming more widespread as the idea of interest continuously clashing and, and undermining the central core tenets. That's it for this week's Deeper Dive. And I hope it's given you a kind of a, a background idea of what, how these interventions in the world can work, uh, particularly in the case of Syria, where R2P was used twice in the Security Council and vetoed twice. And so it's still a central part of major events going on in the world today. I've also brought up some of the obstacles in front of R2P and retaining and improving its legitimacy. And the next 10 to 30 years will be absolutely critical for R2P and whether it remains as an important function of the UN or if it'll be overridden effectively by unilateral action. So we'll try and bring it up to date with any new information that comes about, but it's just something to keep in the back of your mind about how these systems work and, and where the world is moving in terms of its general cooperation or more individualist kind of realist approaches to things. That's it for this week's podcast. As always, you can find our website at www.envoyfpa.org. You can also email us at envoyuwa at gmail.com. Feel free to send us any feedback, questions, or requests you may have. We're also happy to announce we are in talks with a number of IR experts to bring them on for interviews on a wide range of topics. We've been your hosts, Nathan Shaw and Tim Gosling. We'll be back next week with more news and foreign policy analysis.